0: The church is being challenged to compromise every day, it seems, from our culture, from our politics, from our entertainment. Just how much of this compromise will the church allow to seep into its culture? How will the church be changed by the outside influences? You know, this is not a new thing. This is happening way back in, in the first, second, third, fourth centuries. This is Pastor Greg. This is Life 66. And we are in our study of Revelation and when we uh, come to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, we come to the church at Pergamum, or Pergamus, as it can be called, and the exact same pressures that we're feeling today to compromise and to have the influence of of secular society seep into the church, it happened then too. And it's actually been happening all along that, that Satan is always trying to influence the church and trying to get the church to become something uh, less than... What God intended it to be. So let's dive into this passage today. Before we do, let's do, do a quick review. This is the third of seven churches that we've uh, that we will look at. The first was Ephesus, and remember, the names of the of the churches tend to have meanings that are associated with what's going on in the church and in the letter to that church. Ephesus, if you remember, name means maiden of choice, a term of endearment of a of a, a romantic couple. And the description in the book of Ephesus, or in the letter to the Ephesians, is that they have lost their first love. In Smyrna, the second letter, uh, letter, the root is myrrh, this ointment or gummy substance used in perfume that was given to Jesus by the Magi um, at his birth with the gold and the frankincense. And it's used for embalming and to to seal the, the body of someone who has been deceased. And you notice in the, in the letter to this uh, church at Smyrna, it's referenced, uh, death is referenced three times. So you see the connection between the name and what is actually in the, the letter. We're going to see the same thing today. But before we do that, let's look at some background of Pergamum. The present city uh, of Pergamum exists today. It's called Bergama in Turkey. And where Ephesus was the great political center, Smyrna was a great commercial center Pergamum or Pergamus is the great religious center. It's located about 60 to 70 miles north of Smyrna, just off the uh, Aegean Sea. And it was the spiritual center of Asia. The uh, Greek uh, cult worship was found there. The altar of Zeus, the, the highest great god of, of the Greek gods' uh, culture, was there. Um, also an intellectual center. The people are very, very intelligent, and it's fascinating that you have this mix of intelligence with extreme spirituality. Uh, they worshiped the a god of healing, uh, Asclep- As- <laughs> Asculapius. There we go. It's the, the name where we get our word, scalpel. And this god was worshiped there with the idol of a serpent on a pole. If you notice, our symbol for our medical services today in the United States is the serpent on the pole, the caduceus. Uh, That was the official emblem of the city of Pergamum. Um, Incidentally, if you remember, that same symbol of a serpent on a pole was what God told Moses to set up in the Old Testament when he cursed the people of Israel with poisonous snakes. And if they were bitten by one, they could just look to the serpent on the pole and they could be healed. Now, of course, this Caduceus symbol in Pergamum was not connected to the Jesus uh, typology symbol, um, but yet a, a, a cultish um, symbol. The persecution of Christians was great in this area, but the persecution of Christians caused tremendous growth of the church. That always happens. Whenever the church gets persecuted, they really must... Uh, live their lives in the way uh, that is true to God, and they, we um, flourish in those times. The word pergamum is uh, a compound word. Per, the prefix, means perverted or mixed or objectionable. Gami is marriage, like you find in bigamy or monogamy. So you put the word together, pergamum or Pergamus. it's mixed marriage the church has been infiltrated by worldly practices after this great persecution of the last 300 years under Roman rule. And we're going to learn today that what the devil can't take by force, he'll take by deceit. And I think you can find that very familiar today, that oftentimes a a Christian or a church or, or even our faith in general won't bow down with direct conflict. But the slow frog in the kettle deception is what can finally turn a person or a church over time. The, uh, Babylon is referenced here. The, uh, actually, let me read the passage. I haven't read the letter yet before we start to describe it. Let me read it to you. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you, have, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore— Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Well, now let's look to some of this background. Uh, Babylon is, is central to, to this passage, and I'll begin to explain that as we go along. Uh, to understand this, we have to understand the roots of Babylon and and the connection of this church and the next one of Thyatira, its connection also to Babylon. Uh, you're going to see this reference throughout um, the book of the Revelation, reference to Babylon, especially in chapters 17 and 18. Well, let's look back. We, we first see uh, a, a character named Nimrod, uh, back in Genesis. Uh, there's a little bit about him in Genesis chapter 10, verse eight, uh, 8 to 10. He's the first dictator, the first world dictator, our history tells us, and he is the founder, Nimrod, of the city of Babylon. The symbol of the serpent, that is the emblem of Pergamus, associated mythologically with the character of Zeus. Nimrod has a wife named Semiramis, and they have a son named Tammuz. Tammuz is associated with the sun god. His death and supposed resurrection is celebrated at the winter solstice on December 22nd through 23rd. And as the days get longer, he is said to have resurrected. This celebration of the death and resurrection of of Tammuz, the son of Nimrod, includes the burning of a Yule log replaced by a trimmed, decorated tree the next morning. Uh, The people share affection under a mistletoe. Does that sound familiar? Those are our symbols for our our Christmas season, and it's celebrated there in the December time. How do we get the celebration of Christ's death in December? Jesus was most likely born, not in December, but in late summer or early fall, for, for no one would, would travel during the winter. Shepherds would not be out at night in the winter. The, the, the region of Judea is impassable in the winter. No um, leader in his right mind would call a census in that time. Well, what's happening is Babylonian mythology and Christianity are getting mixed. Remember what Satan can't get by frontal assault, he'll get by slow deception over time. Yule log, Christmas tree, mistletoe, all trace their origins back to Babylon. Not only that, but the names of our days of our week, the names of our months, uh, our calendar, 12-month calendar, 60 minutes in an hour, 60 seconds in a a minute, all come from a Babylonian root. Fascinating. In In the letter, it says, I know where you are, where the seat of Satan or the throne of Satan is. Cyrus and the Persians conquer Babylon. When they conquered the the center of Babylon, uh, excuse me, the center of Babylonian influence shifts to Pergamos. Satan's throne is a very real description of the invisible principalities and powers of this Babylonian paganism. Well, the Persians get conquered by the Greeks, and later the Greeks get conquered by the Romans the center of pagan influence then shifts to Rome. And under Rome, you get these 10 emperors uh, until 313 that we mentioned last week when we talked about the letter to Smyrna. So if you haven't uh, listened to that podcast yet, go back and listen to that one and you'll learn more about these 10 emperors. Well, Constantine, the, the, uh, the ruler in the Turkish region, In 3.12, he's coming against his rivals, the Romans, this superpower empire. And Constantine resorts to praying as he's going to do battle against the Romans because his father had prayed and won many victories. So he prays, and as he prays, it is said that he has a vision of a shining cross in the sky with the inscription on it that says, in this sign, thou shalt conquer. Conquer. And so he goes out in boldness and Constantine and his nation, they defeat the Roman Empire. His defeated foe, um, because he's defeated his foe under the sign of his vision of the cross, he immediately declares the entire nation to convert to Christianity. Now remember, under Roman rule, the persecution of Christianity has been intense and Christians have grown. So now suddenly, when Constantine overthrows the Roman Empire and declares Christianity to be the national religion, suddenly the the villains, uh, the Christians, are now the heroes. And those who are being persecuted are now the ones that everybody is supporting. And so the problem, however, is that that Constantinople, or or the nation of Constantine is uh, back in that century that they're still pagan. And so now you've got pagan rituals and pagan culture now suddenly mixing with this Christian declaration that the nation is Christian, and the Christians and the pagans begin to mix. The problem is that the culture influences the Christian culture, not the other way around. The Christians come out of their caves, they come out of hiding, and they begin to take on the nature and the practices of the pagan culture. What Satan can't do by direct persecution, he does by mixing Christianity with paganism. And you're going to see this much more in the letter. The priesthood then moves from Pergamum to Rome, and the first pope is put in place there, and the concepts of celibate priests, the crucifix, purgatory and the worship of mary all arise out of this mixture of christianity with babylonian paganism fascinating verse 12 of the of the letter to pergamum it speaks of of jesus being the one of the sharp double-edged sword we see that in chapter 1 of course in verse 16 and then we're going to see it again in chapter 19 where out of his mouth comes this sharp sword. We understand from Hebrews four twelve that the sharp sword is the word of God. It's that double-edged, piercing, sharp sword. The only way to combat the deception is with the absolute clear understanding of the word of God. If you want to, to, to have purity come back again and to destroy this mixture of paganism and Christianity that they were seeing there in Pergamum at the time, you do it by one thing, and that's being confronted with the absolute word of God. Paganism and Christianity are opposites, yet the Christians are trying to coexist through compromise. The Lord is against that compromise, and he gives us his word to stand on. It says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan lives, where Satan has his throne, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not denounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Notice that the emphasis is not on the works of the church, but on where they dwell, where Satan's throne is. An actual throne? Not likely, obviously, but but possibly the reference to the gigantic altar to Zeus that is there. There's the reference to to the fact that the pagan... Uh, Babylonian paganism is central there, that we must not be blind to the fact that there are spiritual principalities and powers that war for control, where we live and what we do are a part of that unseen conflict, how we pray, how we obey and endure our powerful tools in securing our environment for Jesus. He says, two things though that you do, he, he lists here the uh, Church of pergamus that you do that, that are commendable. It says, first, you've remained true to my name, loyal to the deity and lordship of Jesus' name, who he is, intimacy with him, uh, the authority of his name. Um, and secondly, that they did not renounce their faith. The implication is that there, there's been some public pressure. They did not give in to it, even when one of their own, Antipas, was martyred, and they still proclaim Jesus. But... There are some among them who are mixed. Some among them who have bought in to the pagan uh, belief system. It says, nevertheless, verse 14 and 15, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also... Uh, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember, uh, or rather, the list has grown, right? First there's, I have this against you. Now I have a few things against you. That there's a problem with two doctrines here. That there's the teachings are tolerated rather than confronted, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In an effort to get along, evil, deadly doctrines are allowed. Back in... With the Ephesians, it says that, that you hate the, the, the ways of the Nicolaitans. Now, in Pergamum, they are, some are holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Remember, the Nicolaitans is the, the separation of the laity and the clergy. If you want more about that, refer back to the, to the podcast on the church to the, to the Ephesians. It says, "'You have bought into the way of Balaam. Where is this from?' This is from numbers 22 through 25 and 31. The teaching of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet that was greedy for money. Balaam was hired by King Balak, the king of Moab, who were the enemies of the people of God, and he hired Balaam to curse them. But God is war- or Balaam is warned by God, not to curse them, through this this talking donkey. It's a fascinating story as Balaam's donkey tells him, says basically, don't do it. Don't curse him. And Balaam uh, doesn't curse uh, Israel to Balak's uh, chagrin. But not satisfied with God's answer, Balaam makes further requests and is given permission, Uh, or rather, he, he can't... He can't curse Israel, but he begins to, 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 to bring in other ideas that's not a direct curse, but gets Israel to actually want to connect with the Moabites, which God commanded them not to do. So what he does is he devises this plan. He tells Balak, since he can't uh, curse Israel... Just get the women of Balak's kingdom to tempt the Israelite men and cause them to commit adultery. God would then have to punish his people, and Balak would get his curse, not by a direct curse, but by an end-around curse, by them giving in to the culture of the Moabite women. The purpose then is that they would intermarry, they would begin to serve uh, the Moabite gods, Balaam gets rich because Balak pays him, and ultimately the seduction works. The men do commit adultery with foreign women. They start to sacrifice toward their gods, and God has to has to judge His people. However, Balaam didn't count on God's grace for His people, and He ultimately pours out His His blessing on the nation. Balaam is a is a. Symbol of religious compromise. Second Peter two two to sixteen, Jude eleven, all speak to this. That um, this letter to Pergamum speaks of a period of history when the church gets married to the world via this uh, declaration of Constantine, making the church the, or Christianity the, the national religion, mixing it with paganism, and we see now the decay of the church. In that, in that time period. Powerful and interesting, but can you see maybe some similarities to today's church? He calls them to repent, verse 16. I call you to repent and be separate. There's only one way to solve this, this mixed marriage, and that is to know the word of God and obey the word of God. The dr- absolute truth must be held on to And then to obey it, not just to know it, to obey it, this double edged sword. Your mind must be changed. Your attitude of compromise has to be changed. Your willingness to only go part way has to change. Repent is always God's way of getting us straight again. And he does it with the word of God. It says, Repent or else he will come soon to you and he will fight against you with the sword of his mouth. If we don't repent, the word of God will come and it will it will judge us. This weapon of God is a powerful weapon when it's on our side, but when wielded against us, it's conviction. As the word of God stares us in the face and judges us by showing us how unclean we are. God will judge either those who come against his church or the church itself when we've gone astray. But he says, those who overcome, there'll be manna and a new name on a white stone given to you. He who has an ear, let him hear, verse 17, what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This hidden manna, it's an allusion, of course, to the hidden manna in the ark to remind Israel of God's provision daily in the wilderness. Manna is a word for what is it, this food that came from heaven. Jesus tells us what it is. In metaphorically, Jesus says, I am the manna, I am the true bread, I am your sustenance. John 6 says, when Jesus was teaching, he says, take, eat my body. Obviously, he didn't mean to be cannibals. He says, it's me, I am your source, I am your provision, take me in daily, and you will see that you will have refreshment for your soul. You will have truth in your mind. You will have strength in your body and, and strength in your will. Ingest him, take Jesus in, and you'll find your daily sustenance. It says also you receive a white stone with a new name written on it. This is fascinating. Stones were used in judgment. When someone was acquitted of a crime, he would be presented with a white stone. If he was found guilty, he'd be given a black stone. What a powerful picture of the grace of God that these who turn from a, away from the mixed marriage, from the pagan mixture, will receive an acquittal—the grace of God. A stone different is different. The second reason, our second uh, uh, allusion to the white stone. Um, there's a, the twelve stones on the priestly breastplate; none of them were white when they went in when he went into the presence of God this is a new stone that one gets to enter the presence of God when you meet Jesus face to face he's going to give you a new a white stone and it says only with with a name on it that only the one who receives it and the one who gave it to you knows so only you and God know the name that's on that stone my name is greg when I get to heaven someday, there are going to be likely millions of Gregs, And when Jesus calls my name, are all a couple of million of us going to turn and say, yes, Lord? Now he's going to give me a stone, a white stone with my name, with a name written on it, the only I know. So when he calls that name, it's just going to be me he's talking to. It's talking about intimacy, that there's a new intimacy, not like the priestly breastplate back in the Old Testament, When the priest would go in. Now, this is a new 13th stone. It's a special one of intimacy. And a last allusion to the stone is in Roman practice, when a certain person was a victor in a contest or a race, he was given a white stone with his name on it as a ticket to gain entrance to the very special party of victory celebration later. I don't know about you, but I know that that's a VIP party in heaven for all of eternity. That's my entry ticket into heaven, forever and ever. I'm so thankful that God, even though we compromise, even though we struggle, even though we may at times fall prey to the temptations of our culture and give in, that God is gracious. And if we will turn, if we will repent, we will receive the hidden manna. We will receive Jesus to to sustain our souls. We will also receive this white stone, the acquittal stone, the stone of intimacy, and the ticket to the VIP party in heaven. That's what we'll receive. That's what all overcomers will receive, and I hope you're going to be one of those. Let me challenge you today. If there's compromise in your life, if there's places where you're not completely sold out, there's judgment waiting for those who have a mixed marriage, who want to mix Christianity with the world. It can't be done. You either are all in or you're all out. Living in the middle is is the worst life ever. We're going to learn about that in the seventh letter to the Seventh Church of Laodicea. We'll get to that in a couple of podcasts. Right now, if I was in a place of compromise, I would bow my head right now and just say, God, forgive me. God, I want to be right with you and I want to serve you in purity. Lord Jesus, forgive me. And as soon as you do, you can be sure that you are completely forgiven God.